This podcast is from Christian Chapel in Tulsa, Oklahoma. For more information, visit us online at christianchapel.com. All right, you are joining us for the last Sunday of our message series that we've called Kingdom Builders. So all through January, we were exploring what it looks like for God's kingdom to come uh, to us and through us and how when we invest our lives in his kingdom, it expands our heart, it expands our trust in him, and it helps us to live in a way that matters right now and that will matter long after we're gone. Uh, This morning, we are going to conclude by talking about how the kingdom God calls us to is a diverse kingdom, Um, that it is a a beautiful kingdom that is not supposed to be full of people who look like us, think like us, talk like us, act like us, speak like us, and eat like us, Uh, but it's supposed to be a, a world where we are fully embracing the beautiful diversity of God's creation as he intended for it to be. In a few moments, Clifton Talbert is going to come, and I'm going to interview him and ask him uh, just to tell us some of the stories of his life, uh, from growing up in rural, segregated Mississippi uh, to transitioning out of that part of the world and his experiences, uh, just experiencing the grace of God to bring wholeness and restoration, even when it seems like there are many, many obstacles being put up in your place. Before we do that, though, I want to uh, provide us with kind of our our scriptural foundation for this morning. So if you have a a Bible with you, we're going to look at two passages really quick. The first is in Galatians, and the second will be in Revelation. If you don't have it, that first one is coming up here for you now. Galatians chapter 3, Paul writes, So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Paul reminds us that part of God's original design was for his creation to be diverse. Now, sin has entered into the world and has capitalized on those differences to create division. But God in his design did not include for our differences to create division, but instead for them to be a source of beautiful diversity among us. But as we know, sin corrupts everything completely, and it begins to turn our hearts against those who are different from us. And so when Paul comes, he is reminding us when Jesus arrives in our life, we are one with everyone else who has also been baptized into Christ. And he uses that phrase over and over again. You are all children, all of you who were baptized, right? You are all one in Christ Jesus, making it abundantly clear to us that these separations and these things that divide us no longer divide us in Christ. Now, we may still have different skin color. We may still speak different languages. We may be from different parts of the world, from different cultures within our own nation. But what the scriptures teach us above all else is that our primary identity in Christ is as the sons and the daughters of God. And that identity means that we do not merely tolerate those who are different than us, but that we embrace them as our brothers and sisters. I mean, think of you, for those of you who are parents, think of your own children. If there is tension between your kids, if one child elevates themselves above the other, or if one child uh, demotes themselves and says, I'm not as good as my siblings are, you as a, a father, you as a mother will not rest until your kids have been brought back into harmony. 
right? One of the greatest stresses on a parent's heart is when their children are at odds with each other. And what Paul is trying to teach us here is that as followers of Christ, we do not merely acknowledge one another or tolerate one another, but we love one another and embrace each other because we are one in Christ. And just in case we don't get it, the the scriptures end with the book of Revelation, which is this picture that the apostle John has of what the kingdom will be like when it fully arrives. In Revelation chapter 7, John gives us this beautiful description, this vision he has of the kingdom. And he says, I looked and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, every tribe, every people, and every language standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. This is, this is where we're headed. This is the, the finish line. And so if the scriptures are telling us this is who you are in Jesus, and this is one day who you will all be together, then in the meantime, we want to strive for that experience. Every nation, every tribe, every people, every language. This is your final destination as a follower of Christ, hand in hand with your brothers and sisters. The differences may still be visible, but they will not matter. Instead, they will be appreciated for their diversity, and they will be part of joining a a full voice of worship to the Lord. So practically, what this means for us today is that heaven will be a racist nightmare, right? Right? I mean, think about it. Think about throughout the history of the church how many times we as Christians have attempted to divide and to elevate ourselves above each other because of the difference of our skin color, the difference of our nationality, the difference of our language, the difference of our economic standing. And what the scriptures are clearly telling us is that garbage has no place in the kingdom. We are brothers and we are sisters. Now, for those of us uh, in, in the United States who live in what we would call the majority culture, right? So if you're wondering, white people, that's you, okay? That's me too. Just let's, let's be very clear. Let's not have any ambiguity here. What that means for us is that we must join hands with our brothers and sisters from different backgrounds to hear their stories, to welcome them into our homes, to welcome them into our families. And as we do, they do the same for us, and we begin to participate in this diverse kingdom. And what you will find is that as you move into these relationships, which require that you get out of your comfort zone, that you be very intentional to build them, what you'll find is that from the stories you hear, you'll learn two things. You'll learn first, we have come a very long way. When I go to lunch with Clifton and he tells me stories about what it was like to grow up in the Jim Crow South, at times it feels like he might as well be telling me stories about what it was like to grow up on the moon. Like I, I have no frame of reference from my upbringing of a world that is so sinfully divided and hateful. And yet I need to hear those stories, right? I need to feel that pain. I need to understand that the darkness of our hearts never leads to good places, And so as as Clifton's telling me those stories, and as I read the stories of slavery in the United States and his experience and all the other forms of legal discrimination and segregation that we've had, and I see that those are no longer official policy of our nation, it is a, a reason for us to pause and say, we have come a long way. 
And yet, if you have also engaged in conversations with people from minority backgrounds, you learn quickly, we have not come as far as we think we have. That there are still challenges, there are still divisions, that racism may not be overt, but it still remains. There are still challenges, barriers, and obstacles being thrown up in their way. And it's as we join together around dinner tables, in church, in small groups, and other places that we begin to hear each other's stories and learn from them. Clifton Talbert and his wife Barbara are member, have been a part of Christian Chapel since the late 1970s. Uh, many of you, if you've been around at all, you know Clifton Talbert, maybe not so much in this service because they're normally in the 915 service, but Clifton and Barbara are extremely faithful to the Lord uh, to be a part of the community at Christian Chapel. Clifton is a Pulitzer Prize-nominated author writing about the stories of his childhood and how the, the lessons he learned growing up in a difficult place have shaped him as a, as a businessman and entrepreneur over the course of his life. He is um, invited to speak all around the nation, all around the world, often on the topics of community, diversity, and inclusion, and it is just a, a wealth of wisdom. And so it's our privilege this morning to invite Clifton. He's asked me to interview him this morning, so we're going to ask Cliff to come and share some of his stories with us. Will you please help me welcome him? Cliff, your, your first book, uh, we've got a copy of it here, I'm going to borrow from you, was called Once Upon a Time When We Were Colored. And it tells a story of growing up in that land that I can't imagine. Uh, last, I, I don't think I told you, last September we went down to, to um, Destin to visit my dad. And so on the way back, we drove through the, the delta there in Mississippi and uh, was trying to picture, but even then, it's impossible. I just can't wrap my mind around it. Can you describe what it was like growing up in that place at that time? Growing up in the Mississippi Delta, uh, what you're seeing now is a cotton field. That's all I knew. I would often find myself sitting on my grandpa's tall steps, looking as far as I could, and all I could see were cotton fields everywhere. And I thought at that point I'd seen the end of my world, because that journey had begun in our country in 1619. And before the end of slavery, 1865, you had almost 300 years where cotton literally defined your life. Five o'clock, five years old, I should say, was when I started working in the fields. And that was just the way it was. Uh, that's what your parents had done. And it would be hard-pressed to think that that world would ever end, but, but it did. And when writing the book, Once Upon a Time When We Were Colored, it gave me an opportunity to write about the insides of our house. Very few people had been inside our homes, had never sat at our tables, never had a meal with us. So who are these strange people that live three doors down or across the street or on the other side of town? I see them, but who are they? And, and this book gave me an opportunity to say they are mothers and fathers and grandparents, aunts and uncles and cousins. They are people with children. They are people who are dreaming. And in spite of the cotton fields of the Delta, we were able to find ways and wish for that world, for the most part, to come to an end. And I firmly believe that God has always been involved in that, just as he was involved with the Hebrew children, enslaved for almost 400 years. God heard their cries. I always say, God hears your cry, but he has a different clock. 
So he doesn't really answer sometime on the day you think he should, but he does. And I can say that I'm very appreciative of the fact that God is still answering our prayers. So this book was turned into a movie, and we, we were able to grab uh, an old copy of the trailer off of that uh, from YouTube. So I want to share that with us just to give us a, a little bit of a, a better picture of what life was like there in the Delta. I'm curious, how many of you, there are elements of that that you remember or experienced? Anybody? Thank you. I mean, I know, I know that depends on where we grew up and, and those types of things, but um, Clifton, every time we talk... And when I read the book, the, the movie clip we saw there, it always highlights to me this, this juxtaposition of you grew up in a harsh climate that in many ways seemed like the deck was stacked against you. And yet when you write and talk about it, you acknowledge that, yet you tell a very positive story of the power of community. How do you, how do you navigate that tension between the world was awful and the world was great? Good question, Chris. It's difficult for me as a human being to write that story because as humans, we tend to remember the hurt and it doesn't go away simply because you, have, you are a day older. It stays with you. William Faulkner said the past is never quite past. The past is still past. But you write that story mainly because God allows you to do that because now as a Christian, I'm looking through the world through the eyes of God. And God is in literally, and when I say God, that's what I mean. It's not a slip of my tongue. I was in the last end of the Vietnam War. I did not go to Vietnam, but I was at the staging grounds for Saigon is where I was stationed. And most of my friends were going, and many of them died. So it was a very scary time in my life. I was just barely 19. And that's when God started me writing. Writing, and I had no idea what I was writing for. But I kept writing about this town. I kept writing about these people. I kept writing about my great-grandparents. I kept writing about the juxtaposition of legal segregation and their ability to love me and to care for me. And 24 years after that, it became this book that basically gives all Americans an opportunity to walk into the world of the South historically, walk into homes that you've never been, and to understand and get the feeling, this is my house as well. This is where I've been. That's the way God has created us. Separation has come not from God, but from Satan who seeks to conquer, divide, and destroy. But together as Christian brothers and sisters, we are powerful beyond belief because God gives us the ability to embrace not only each other, but to embrace the world that he has created. Who were some of the people in your life along the way that helped you really learn those lessons? I call them heroes. They've always been those people uh, that God would put in your life. And it's really interesting because when you meet those heroes, if they could put that screen up, slide up for me, please. When you meet those heroes, you're not thinking about a book. You're not thinking about your life 30, 40, 50 years later. These are people doing the right things at the right time. But at the same time, God who has planned our lives, I am thoroughly convinced that he knew that I would be a writer. I didn't know that. that was, I couldn't even go to the library in my town. It was close to me. And I was the only one that we all paid for, but I couldn't go. But God said the audacity to say, I want you to be a writer. And, and as I wrote, I'm writing about these people 
who really protected me and gave me reason to believe in tomorrow. My great-grandparents, Joe and Pearl Young, from my perspective, they are the best great-grandparents on the face of this earth. Not only because they loved me, but because they protected me. You see, at 13 and 12 and 7, you haven't quite gravitated toward the laws of legal segregation. Your humanity sort of, you want to run here, you want to do this, you want to go to this place, and your grandpa grabs your hand, and he holds it, and he doesn't say anything. But let me give you just a little short story. We were in Greenville, Mississippi. That's, at that, those days, it was called the Queen City of the Delta. And my, my grandpa and I were going to town to get stuff for himself and other people as well. And when we parked at the levee and had to walk up Washington Avenue, now I'm walking free in Glen Allen, no big deal, Every, you're just running and walking. But in Washington on Washington Avenue, my grandpa gets my hand. And, and then I noticed there's a white couple coming down the street just facing us. So my grandpa holds my hand, but then he pulls me closer to him, and he sort of tucks me under his stomach. And, and he gently, with me, he walks off the sidewalk. Because, you see, I had to learn how to be a colored person in the Mississippi Delta. And part of that learning was, when you see a white person, you walk off the sidewalk. So that's what I had to learn to do. Papa not only protected my life, but he also became the source of what was possible. Because I can remember Papa never said anything ill about a white person even though they would call this great man boy, would never call him by his name. The only thing my grandpa ever told me, he said, baby, white people are sick, but they'll get well after a while. God got it. <laughs> and that's all he ever said. I mean, I've never had a full-fledged conversation. That's all my grandpa told me. He knew there was a problem. He didn't quite know how to define it. He called it sick. But he also said, they'll get well after a while. But then there's my great aunt, Mama Pong. The South was not designed for, for black people to get an education. That sort of slipped upon the South. When you've been in slavery for almost 300 years, where you, are taught, where you cannot read, it's against the law for you to read. It's against the law for you to write. It's against the law for you to have dreams and ambition. And even if a white person in their generosity would want to teach you to read, their lives could be taken away from them. I mean, that's how this intellectual pursuit was not necessarily something that was every day in the world in which I had come from. But my great aunt, who, who was the last person to raise me, I lived in her house, she was determined that I would get an education. Because without an education, I only had one road. And that road would be sharecropping, driving tractor, or again, picking cotton, as my great-grandparents and grandparents had done before me. So for four years, I lived with my great aunt. For four years, I went to school every day. But we had to travel 100 miles round trip every single day. The white high school was right behind my house. I passed another white high school, probably about 25 miles further up from where we live, maybe 17 miles. But we couldn't go there. And so my great aunt said, you're going to go to school. And I can remember the bus drive would come at night. I mean, it would be night. The sun hadn't even come up. And my great aunt would be standing on the front porch in a flannel gown and a head rag, pulling the strings on a 60-watt light bulb because she wanted the driver to know to stop at her house. For four years he came, for four years he stopped, for four years I got on. Never missed a day out of school, not one day, and graduated valedictorian of my class. This is my hero. Mm -hmm. 
But God also realizes he hasn't built us to be able to get along by ourselves. We need each other. My next hero is my boss, Mrs. Knight. I rake leaves for her. I remember the day that I was hired. She had a fig orchard. And I had to read. This is uh, Polly Bergen pl played her in the movie. And I remember when we were on the movie set, uh, Mrs. Bergen uh, pulled me aside and she said, I just love this story. She said, just tell it to me again. I want to hear it from you because obviously she has the script to read. She said, I want you to tell me about this lady because she literally went against the culture norms of the day on my behalf. On the day that our first day was there, it was around 11.30, I was getting hungry, but my great aunt who said, you know, we don't have any sandwiches for you, so you eat when you come home. And that was the way that was. Mrs. Knight comes, she was at a sewing shop. She comes out of a sewing shop, she said, come on, Clifton, come on. She talked like a little chirping bird. Come on, Clifton, come on, come on, it's time for us to go and eat lunch. And she used a pronoun that had never been used with me with a white person before. It's time for us to go and have lunch. And as she said that, I was going to the right, which would have been on the path, a concrete path to the kitchen, because in those days, that was the only place that a black person could go into a white person's home, was through the kitchen. You couldn't go through the front door. And so, but she said, no, no, come on, come on, follow me. And, and I followed her through her spacious home, her hardwood floors. I remember peeping into the dining room. It was just incredible. Then we went into the kitchen where the table was set. And, and there we had our meal together. Uh, baked chicken, lima beans, and sweet milk. But I, I remember when I, when I said that, I was, someone was asking me at a time, well, I said, I drank out of a crystal and ate off a china. They said, well, where else would you eat? I said, but you don't understand, in my world, if a white person knowingly had eaten behind a black person of a piece of uh, china, they'd break the china. I mean, our legal segregation was so in place in the Mississippi Delta that no one People were even afraid to break the law, those social laws that were there. But while we're sitting there eating, and I'm trying to get used to that because I'm very, I'm a lot of anxiety, Chris. I mean, she's not my great aunt, and she's not Papa Joe and Mama Pearl. I'm sitting across from my boss eating. And she said, well, what books are you reading? And you may say, but to me, that has been the most important question she ever asked me. Because to ask a young black guy, what books are you reading, indicates your expectation for something more for his life. I told her what I was reading, and she went into what I call a Mississippi hissy fit. It's like, oh, <laughs> you, 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 you can't read those books. You have to read good books. You have to read classics. You've got to read books from the library. I said, Mrs. Nice, I can't go to the library. And then dead silence just fell over. We finished eating. She went back to the sewing shop. I went back to raking pig leaves. The next week when I came to work, she again invited me in her home for dinner, for lunch, that is. And there beside my plate, Chris, was a stack of books from the library. She said, this is what you should be reading. She never knew that I would be a writer, that her good act, her unselfish act, her courageous act, would be a, something that would potentially change my life. It was not just books one time, but for the years that I worked for her, she made sure that I read the classics, that I knew this. I, she never once gave me an instruction on how to rake, a fig, rake the fig leaves, but it was about my life. Mrs. Knight is one of my heroes. I love those stories because you can clearly see how God used all these different people along the way. 
But you also tell the story of how in 1956, God himself showed up in a very supernatural way to change the trajectory of your life. Do you mind sharing that story with yeah. us? My folks, my grandpa, great-grandfather, that is, was the Baptist minister. But in that particular world, we had never heard about Pentecost or the Holy Spirit or anything like that. That was very foreign to us, uh, very, very foreign. My mother had an illness that almost took her to death. But when she came back, while she, was, she had promised God that if you let me live to raise my children, I will serve you all the days of my life. And she didn't know exactly what that would mean, but she meant it, and God literally preserved her life. But at one point, she had gone to church, a church called Evening Star Baptist Church, where my great-grandfather pastored. And at this point, Chris, that the, the rules of cultural, rules of segregation was being broken. The white pastor, Brother Overstreet, was about 27 years old. He asked my great-grandfather, could he come preach at his church one Sunday? You have to keep in mind, these are the things that we didn't do. The church was as segregated as the schools and everything else. The only time that you would see a white person or a black person in the same place of worship would possibly be if someone had passed away. If a plantation owner had passed away, you could go to his or her funeral. Or if an older black person who had been a butler for 40 years passed away, you would probably see that family at the funeral. But you never had any social crisscrossing at the funeral. So for this man to ask my great-grandfather, can I speak at your church, uh, that was unheard of. But my grandfather said, well, sure. He came on, he preached. Uh, I wasn't there. My mother told me this. And uh, he asked, do anyone want prayer for the Holy Spirit? All my mother could remember was that when she, was laid, when she lay dying, she asked God to let her live to raise her children, and she would serve him all the days of her life. And it was in that remembrance of that prayer that she was the only person to go up for prayer, and she received part of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And this young pastor, uh, I can honestly say, again, as we talk about diversity, as we talk about people working together, and following the path that God has set. This man had no idea what God was doing in his life. He literally changed our family, changed the community, and changed people all around the world because he had the courage to do what he was told not to do. And when my young sister got ill, he wanted to come over and pray for her. And the church where he pastored, it was a white church, said, if you go, you can no longer pastor here. And he decided that he would obey God. And because he obeyed God, I'm sitting here with you today, Chris, because he obeyed God. Two years ago, I spoke at the United Nations. Two years ago, I watched people from around the world stand and applaud as I talked about the legacy that we needed to leave to people around the world. If this one man had decided I'm white and they're black and that's it, I would not have known the beauty of the Holy Spirit. I would not have known the gifts that God had. But God knew this. And this man, even though he had to leave, but he left having done God's will. That's great. So in 1968, uh, you, you have this firm Christian foundation, vibrant relationship with the Lord. You've heard about Oral Roberts University, and you arrive in Tulsa to go to college. Tell us a little bit about what that was like getting here on campus and your experience at ORU. I had about two and a half years of college left, and uh, I'd always wanted to come to ORU. 
I had written a letter when I graduated from high school to Chuck Ramsey, who was the dean of admissions at the time. And I asked Chuck if ORU was integrated, because that's the first question that you have to ask when you're black. Because the world was not as we know it now, or as it can be. And, and I remember getting on campus. Uh, it, it was, I, I basically had a good experience. I had a good experience on the campus. But in the summer, when, we had, when, closed, when the dorms were closed down, if you want work, you got apartments in the city. And, uh, and that's when I confronted the fact that the color of my skin was still determining how far I could go or where I could go. There were three of us, two white guys and myself. We were friends on, at campus. They said, okay, Talbot, let's get a, let's get a, let's get a room together, a apartment together. We split it three ways. That was great because I was working on campus. But when we got to the apartment building, the lady was not vicious at all. She just simply said, I can rent to you two, but I can't rent to you. And the guy just simply said, it's three of us or none of us. And I'll always remember that in order to bring the kingdom of God into fruition, we have to see the world from his perspective. And sometimes his perspective is not the conversation we heard at the dining room table. His perspective is entirely different. He said, Father, make them one as we are one. And he's left us to do greater things than he has done. And I believe with all my heart that my writing, all that I do, people ask me, say, there's no vindictiveness in your writing. And one guy even said, there's a place at the table for me in your writing. How do you do that? I mean, this has been the question since this book come out and the 14th book. That has been the question always asked. Well, when you listen to the heart of God and you write for reconciliation, you write for God's quest to make real. Father, make them one. This book went all over the world. This book was provided to Nelson Mandela. He requested this book. I'm this kid from Glen Allen, Mississippi. Our lives were lived in two rooms, Chris. Mm -hmm. Two rooms. But after my mother was filled with the Holy Spirit, Glen Allen became a place that you cannot imagine. We couldn't worship whites and blacks together. That was against the law. But at midnight, in those two rooms, our house would be packed with people, white people and black people, coming to learn about the Holy Spirit. And they had to turn it out around three or four, and everybody went back to their regular world. That's how powerful God was and what he was doing. And I sensed that he was doing something, but I never knew that the books that he would give me would also give people an opportunity to discover Christ, because I believe that he's between every page that I've written, that his spirit is there, that he's asking people to really, truly understand who they are and who they can become. And the ORU incident, he finally found a place to live, which was good, but uh, it gave us a lesson of intentionality. And I think that lesson still remains. We have to be intentional. That's why Christ came. He didn't love us from afar. He came close to where we were, and he walked with us, and he left examples for us to follow as well. Yeah. I, I, one of the things I love about Clifton talking with him is that in having difficult conversations, he doesn't come with a, a hammer to beat you over the head, um, though he could. I mean, legitimately, justifiably so. This is the truth. Walk in it. What's wrong with all you backwards rednecks? You know, I mean, these are the things that I would say if I was in your position, which is why, 
Well, I'm glad that he's not. <laughs> I mean, just imagine. Never mind. We shouldn't even imagine. But, uh, but I, I love how Clifton's approach is, I'm just going to tell you stories. And as the stories are told, it opens our hearts. Now, the, the challenge for many of us, uh, especially many of us who uh, look like this, right? Um, the challenge for us is we do not have a lot of these relationships to listen to their stories. Two weeks ago, I went over to Clifton's office to have lunch, and we were talking about this Sunday, and uh, we got off on a conversation about one of the, the great theologians of our time, um, Chris Rock. <laughs> And uh, Chris Rock, I, now I, I heard this on a radio station commercial for a show he was doing in Tulsa, all right? So if you're familiar with his material, you pray for yourself and not me, okay? Um, but he, he had this joke that I was, I was sharing with Clifton about this challenge of how do, you, how do you go about building relationships with people who are different from you? And what Chris Rock says is, all my black friends have a hundred white friends, and all my white friends have the same black friend, Right? And now if, if we let that settle in for a minute and think about it, and if we're honest, white people, it's fairly true, right? And, and so Clifton and I had a, a good talk about he had, you know, for him, the transition from the Delta through uh, all of these different realms that he's been in has involved spending a lot of time with a very diverse group of people. Whereas for many of us, we can move all through life being mostly surrounded by people who look like us, talk like us, sound like us, educated like us, same general backgrounds as us. So Clifton, how do we navigate that gulf between this diverse kingdom where we are joined and embracing one another, and the, just even still the status quo of our society of the general expectations, just spend time with people who are like you. And Chris, that's not only the question for the church, but that is the question that corporate leaders, business leaders ask all over. The business world is diverse. The church is diverse. But that doesn't mean we become brothers and sisters. That doesn't mean that we have crossed that gulf that has separated us for many years. So how does that happen? There are three things that every human being needs. And I believe God has given every other human being the answer to that. That's respect, affirmation, and inclusion. One day I got a call to design a program for Lockheed Martin. And, and this is a huge defense contractor headquartered in the Washington area. And I was sitting there praying. I said, Lord, I got to design a diversity program but I need you to help me to design it in such a way that it is reflective of you. Now, even though I'm going to this high-powered military quasi-industrial plant to, to bring this about, I was sitting in my office, and, and, and just out of the blue, the idea came, Ray. Ask people, how does Ray look in your organization? And Ray is the acronym for respect for affirmation, and for inclusion. If we are not respecting people, it's going to be very difficult to affirm them. It's going to be even more difficult to include them. And that's why God was helping me to understand that respect is where it starts. We can't respect people if we are not engaged with them and have a sense of, you have a part of me, I have a part of you. How do we do this together? How do we walk out of the world that has been carved for so long, and create a different pathway, one has to be intentional about that process. Affirming, 
everyone needs an affirming voice, no matter who they are. But that affirming voice will not come from the text machines that we have. It will not come from all of the technology that we have. That affirming voice will only come from me. When I, when I describe my pastor to other people, you know, I just say, you know, we got a really young white guy. And they said, what? I said, yeah, Chris is really pretty young. I said, but he's a, he's a man that loves the Lord. I said, and, and we feel so comfortable being there because people still ask questions. Uh, but if you go, that means it's South Tulsa. How many black people go to your church? And I can probably count them on. Do you say not enough? Because that's what I say. <laughs> that's what I mean every time. Not enough. I you want to come? I just, I just count them on my hand. And I said, but you should come. It's pretty, pretty good. But because um, <laughs> I've been coming here for like, you know, almost 40 years through every pastor what we've had. And, uh, but I, and I often tell people, I say, well, well, God is sending everybody to Africa to missionary. He sent me to Christian chapel. So, <laughs> so I am your in-resident missionary. We're thankful for it. Yeah, I'm, I'm not going anywhere. But uh, it does require intentionality for me and for you as well. Uh, I'll tell you another little short story. I guess I always yeah. do that. I'm a trustee for the University of Tulsa, and uh, I'm on the athletic committee. And obviously, my son laughs because he knows that I know nothing about sports. So his dad should not be on the athletic committee. I talked to Michael Jordan for 12 minutes. I had no earthly idea who he was. I, I'm serious. I, I, I kept saying, who is this guy? I had He's no the idea. greatest basketball player in the history of the world. That's but I didn't know that. <laughs> I, I didn't know that. But uh, I'm Connor on the and I, We'll I'm, show you some YouTube videos. I'm on the, the athletic committee, and uh, I have to go to the athletic banquet. So I'm sitting at the table with the tennis player the tennis players, and uh, there's one skinny white guy there that I'm sitting beside, and uh, he's eating everything in sight. And, and finally I said, man, if you eat that much, you need to come to my house because my wife is an incredible cook. He said, give me your cards. I gave him the card, didn't think anything about it. Long story short, I got a call from him. He said, sir, I thought you were going to invite me to your, to your house. But in the meantime, I had found out who this guy was. Uh, he was from South Africa. He was white, and he'd come from a family name of the ruling apartheid regime in South Africa. I wanted to pull my invitation back. I'm serious. Because that's the thing that I hate what apartheid did to Africa and what legal segregation did in our country. I hated it. But I'd extended the invitation and I've learned that when you're a Christian, you can't afford to be in control of all your feelings. You have to give some of those things to God. And so I said, okay, my eyes, I took, asked Barbara, yeah, she said, fine. He came over, and Barbara had cooked uh, a complete southern meal, pound cake, fried catfish, potato salad, and beans, what I know. It was a great meal. Uh, it, it's, it's the meal that people would just love to have. He walked in. He said, we don't eat this. We don't eat this. And the, and the pound cake has no dressing on it. That's what he calls icing. I was ready to push him out the door. <laughs> but God said, no, just, just listen. So after he'd eaten five plates, literally, of what he had <laughs> never eaten, the long story gets shorter. For four years, this young man became our other son. Every vacation we went to, I mean, for food deals, he was always there. Barbara makes incredible mac and cheese. He guarded the mac and cheese with his life that nobody <laughs> would touch it. When he graduated from TU on his way back to South Africa, Pretoria, I got up and we hugged each other in front of, I don't know, four or 5,000 people. 
And he said to me, he always called me sir. He said, sir, you have been the Nelson Mandela in my life. You accepted me in your home. You fed me. You've made me feel safe in the city. Knowing where I'm from, you didn't hold it against me. And that's what we all have to put ourselves in that position. Intentionality is letting God live through us, letting God do the things that he sees that has to be done. That's why in my writing, I'm writing for reconciliation. I'm writing for people to see themselves in the story. I'm writing for that. Absolutely. We're going to finish with communion this morning. Uh, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 11 that whenever we participate in, the, in communion, we are proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. And so communion always has uh, three aspects to it. It always has a backwards-looking aspect where we're looking back at what Jesus has accomplished for us through his life and resurrection. It has a, a present aspect where we're remembering what difference that makes right now. But then it also has a future aspect of remembering that one day he will return and restore and renew and reconcile all things. And Clifton and I have had talks over the years of, of the significance of communion for you growing up, how that was this, this powerful moment of God's presence, of, and how when we receive it together, it's an opportunity for us to remember Christ has come, his kingdom is here, and yet it's not fully realized. And so until the day of his return, we continue to receive his grace, we continue to extend his grace, and we continue to strive for his kingdom to come in this moment as it will one day come in heaven. And I can tell you from my personal experience, Cliff, you have been part of that in my life, of teaching me what the kingdom should look like, what it should be. I am deeply grateful for your grace and your wisdom that you've not only extended to me, but to so many of us here at Christian Chapel. And I would love for you to pray for us before the ushers come and distribute communion to us. Thanks, Chris. As Chris said, communion service is very important to me. Because that gives us a chance to walk out of ourselves and walk right into the heart of God. Those are the times not just to eat the bread and drink the wine, but to really to expect a miracle for your life. It's just that powerful, the transforming power of God. Let's pray. Lord, we give this time to you. We give our hearts and our lives to you. Thank you for allowing us to participate in your death resurrection, your ascension. We thank you for that. And you said for us to remember you. And as long as we do remember you, our lives will be blessed accordingly. So this moment in time, as the elements of your death, resurrection, are served to us, let us see the cross. Let us see the tomb, the empty tomb. Let us see the ascension. Let us see let us see you. Let us feel you. Let our prayers be answered. We ask this in Jesus' name and for his glory. down every wall that separates us from others as well. Lord, you see our hearts this morning. 
you see those who have been hurt and harmed by the divisions of our culture. And we ask today that you would bring healing to them. You see those whose hearts are hard and cold toward those who are different from them. We ask today that you would bring forgiveness and give us eyes to see our brothers and sisters as exactly that. Those that we join hands with in service to you and we join our voices with in worship of you. Lord, we pray that in this moment your kingdom will come and your will is going to be accomplished. God, bring your salvation to us, to our relationships. May it flow from us to bring transformation to our city, to our nation, and to our world. May we be part of the church continuing to rise up and demonstrate the beautiful diversity of your kingdom. Where all of your people join hands and sing your praise and sing of your salvation. You take the bread with me. stand with me. The band's going to lead us in in just a little bit more of that song that describes our response to God's love. As our loving Father, in His grace, He will not tolerate separation between His children. Through Christ, He has went to war against all of these divisions and hostilities. And so this morning, our response to that is to continue to let His truth speak against the lies of our culture to continue to let his power tear down everything that would separate us from each other. We sing this with us as a, a, just both a declaration of this is what he has done and also a cry of this is what we need him to do.
Thank you for listening to this podcast from Christian Chapel. For more information, visit us online at christianchapel.com.